Yes, well, here we are again. Uh, an entire week has passed since we um, did that dangerous driving and got the tarts. <laughs> it feels like about 30 seconds ago. So our verdict on the tarts, I thought that was a really yummy custard tart. Yes, yeah, stupendous. The yeah. secret with the Portuguese tart is that it's got to be good and burned on top. Like You can't mess around with that. These sort of bilious yellow ones with no burny bits just hopeless, right? And there's got to be the right pastry underneath as well. And it's quite thick at, at, at Sweet Bellum, but really crunchy. Very crunchy. Yeah. And I reckon that's key, the crunchy um, sort of outer casing and then just the really beautifully textured custard. I must admit, though, I, I've never been a massive fan of the Portuguese custard, custard tart, although that was definitely peak Portuguese custard tart that we had at Sweet Bellum. But um, I just hear Lima switching off right now. <laughs> I'm I knew that slag was out of, our, out of line. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Now you're picking holes in the national dessert. Please proceed. Chat Please 10. remember, we're quite near Petersham, right? Chat 10 looks three just, you know, dropped out of the top, you know, 1,000 in Peru. Uh, in Portugal, sorry. Um, I can't even get their country name right. Oh, no. um, oh sorry. Deary, deary me. Um, I'm a... I love the old school, you know, country oh bakery. Oh my god, I've said Lima tart. instead of Lisbon, haven't oh I? No, I mean, oh no! Whoa. This is Were you good around. at capitals at school? We're going to be getting a call from the ambassador. <sighs> yeah, I know. Uh, later, uh, I'm a fan of the old school, you know, the custard tart with the nutmeg on top that you get in an old oh, country yeah. bakery because my nana always used to bring me snot block. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I used to eat with a you know a teaspoon. I'd scoop out the custard in the middle and then eat the crust last. Yeah, yum. I um did some deep experimentation with making my own Portuguese custard tarts when I was pregnant in London and I think I baked every single thing when I was pregnant in London. I went through this sort of bakery challenge phase which was really weird. Um, it ended up with me making from scratch English muffins, um, which was oh. incredibly fun and rewarding. But then they do turn out exactly like the bought ones, but they do, you spend 24 hours Absolutely. making something that you could pick up at the corner shop for <laughs> 49p. So I did, you know, consider that. But I found the best um, recipe was one from an old one from The Age, which was one of those great um, articles that someone wrote about, okay, the science of making Portuguese custard tarts and like rehearsing different techniques. I really like that method of, you know, profiling a dish. The Guardian does a really good job of it with lots of things where you can Google and find all of these sort of steps and arguments about, you know, the best way to make, you know, hollandaise or something like that. It's really um, useful. But this one from the um, age, which I'll try and find a link to, is superb. And the secret of the Portuguese tart is a really hot oven, like oh. stupidly hot oven, hotter oh. than you would think that oh. it, it could possibly survive. And it, they could only cook for about six minutes. Is the custard pre-made on the stovetop and then yes. poured into the... Yeah, right. okay. and your biggest problem is that it will split. And I really, right. in all my experiment, I never really found a way of predicting whether it would or it wouldn't. It seems to be a kind of egg-based insecurity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a fan of the... Occasionally I get hooked on a certain thing that I want to be able to do to perfection and I want to test out different ways yeah. of doing it. And so I'm someone who's got a whole lot of country women's type cookbooks oh, yeah. where everyone's got their different, slightly different method of doing, say, a sponge cake. A few years ago I went through a sponge cake thing where I was trying to do that. I've done baked cheesecakes. I've done um, – this year I did chocolate fondant. I was the uh, beneficiary of a couple of those, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I can't – that has been a great disappointment to me because I've never been able to get a chocolate fondant to the right consistency where the interior is just the right degree of yeah. runniness, but the outside is like a nice thin crust. I keep overcooking them or undercooking them. I cannot do it. And if you're expecting right. a fondant, 
when you get a muffin, even if it's a delicious one. It's just not quite right, is it? No, yeah. exactly. So that was a little disappointing. But the sponge cake one, you, you know, somebody years ago gave me Stephanie Alexander's Cook's Companion, yeah. which at the time I thought, well, I prefer my recipe books with pictures, so I don't love this so much. It is the best. Yeah, the it's best. pretty spectacular. It's unbelievable. Mm. The recipes are all fantastic. And I love the fact that you can go, mm, what have I got in the fridge? Three passion fruits, yeah. some butter. Ingredient and, based. Yeah. yeah. And so you just look up passion fruit and it says goes with this or do that. And it's, I love it. Did you know that it's very difficult to copyright a recipe? We discovered this while we were making Kitchen Cabinet because, um, you know, I mean, all of my recipes, um, although I have this, my best friend from primary school, Wendy Sharp, who does... Um, uh, who, who composes original recipes for the show, which is amazing. And it kind of gives us some shape to our regular correspondence, which is usually about <laughs> food anyway. She lives in London. Um, but we worked out, just we got legal advice on some, you know, recipes. And I'm more of a, you know, direct borrower than she is. She's got a more original approach. But the even the proportions of the recipe are not copyrightable. Wow. Basically... A recipe is only copyright insofar as you're reproducing not only the exact proportions but also the method, you know, kind of word for word, basically. Right. So there's no – it's not like, you know, uh, an iPhone or something, you know, where it's sort of – where you can um, trademark or copyright the um, the the actual form of the thing. Isn't what that if it's something that's really well-known, like <clears throat> like the snow egg or the something? The snow egg, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Um I, d- I don't know. I've never ripped off anything that kind of... Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, look, um, I think it's... Um, uh, that, that's the extent of the um, discussions that we've had anyway. Um, I don't know if there's something over the top with something like that that's incredibly iconic. Um, there may be a kind of a case to be made for something like that. I don't know. My friend Simon Thompson, uh, who d- writes restaurant reviews, yep. occasionally asks me to go with him when mm. he's reviewing something. And it was a really, really interesting experience to actually eat with somebody who was reviewing. And so we went to a restaurant in Moines and he said, the only stipulation for you eating with me is we can't order the same thing and I have to be able to have a bite of your or several bites of whatever you've got. That sounds like standard date night to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, hang on. Um, so uh, that was the only stipulation. Anyway, it was... It was interesting because we sort of talked about our impressions of the meals and whatnot and, and, uh, you know, I liked it and, uh, you know, I'm not a professional food critiquer. And then when the review came out that Simon wrote about it, it was so amazing because he had perfectly captured exactly what I thought about the meal in a way that I would not have been able to explain myself. And then he'd he'd said, well, you know, this worked or didn't work because of X, Y, Z. And then when he explained it, I thought... Oh, yeah, of course. That's exactly what was wrong with it or right with it or whatever. It was amazing to me to see how, like, the level of expertise that he brought to that, basically. Exactly. It's like it's it's being uh, being able to articulate things that we don't ordinarily articulate very um, very in a very detailed way. You know, oh, that's delicious or, oh, don't quite like that for some reason. I mean, I remember um, – I, I, I accompanied Simon once on um, a uh, on, on a dinner because he was going to what's that place in the city in the city that um, all the power brokers oh um, uh, no um, 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 uh, oh, Mackie Mackie Valley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking there's a small book power that goes brokers. with it. It's very popular among the you know God. <laughs> what's wrong with my brain? Um, Machiavelli. Um, 
and it was at the time it was totally kitted out in these sort of full length portraits of Julia Gillard and um, and Kevin Rudd and Alistair Jordan and like right. seriously that place must have incredible overheads that built up during the Rudd Gillard Abbott periods because I had to change the pictures so <laughs> bloody often like what do you do with a second hand seven foot full portrait of Alistair Jordan like what do you do with that I presume you bring an offer it to Alistair Jordan exactly <laughs> fun uh, fun outdoor table for political. <laughs> Always, trophy hunter. I've always wondered that with people that have a portrait of themselves. Like where would you put it well, in your house? I can tell you. Um, Joe Hockey, if you go to his North Sydney electorate office and you walk in, it's, it's completely chockers with portraits of Joe. And I think because, you know, the North Shore, like North Sydney, there's just all of these people who are constantly entering the Mosman Art Prize with, with um, portraits. Heaps of them ask Joe to to pose, but I, I think Joe's um, very long-suffering wife um, draws the line at having, you know, <laughs> kind of cubist reworkings of her husband in their house. So if you go in the office, that's you know, it's hilarious. These giant portraits, but he's such a softy. Well, until recently, that he I think buys them. Well, because, and because he's a politician, he c- could never throw any of them out right. because there'll be someone in the paper, you know, hockey throughout. Found my... in miniskip. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyway, um, I remember going to this meal with Simon Thompson and he was, you know, he was picking these ingredients that I just, you know, I mean, his understanding of the dishes oh, was really significant. Phenomenal. But with, if you're a restaurant reviewer, and this is the thing that, you know, I would be too scared to be a restaurant reviewer or a decent one anyway, because I, th- I think I'd be... I think I'd be too bad at sinking the boot in. And, and like, I feel terrible about that because some of the restaurant reviews that I most love reading are the ones that are just totally scorched earth. And there's this fantastic one that was written a couple of years ago by A.A. Gill, who does, you know, along with Giles Corrin, really sort of specialise in these, you know, excoriating reviews. And it became quite famous. In fact, I've got a printout of it here just because it's... I read it the other day when we were discussing this thing and... Um, and he goes to this restaurant in New York, Aegil, and it's called um, the uh, uh, Tour des Amis, I think. And it's this one of this. It's a French restaurant um, that everybody. Oh no, sorry, it's in it's in Paris. Sorry, it's and it's called L'Ami Louis, and it's this uh, restaurant that all these American expats are always going on about. And he says in the review, you know, if one more fat American tells me I absolutely must go to Chez L'Ami or Lummy Louie. I'm going to explode. Anyway, he goes there and reviews it. And it's just from go to woe, the most unbelievably eye-wateringly terrible review. What what sort of stuff? Well, I'll read you like a little section. Um, There's some dreadful stuff that happens when the uh, pate turns up. And then um, uh, he says, I've decided not to go for the famous roast chicken, mainly because I've suffered it before and I've just been watching a Japanese couple wrestle with one like a manga poltergeist from some (sighs) Tokyo horror movie. It's scaly blue legs stabbing the air. (laughs) So, on to the broiled kidneys. Nothing I have eaten or heard of being eaten here prepared me for the arrival of the veal kidneys en brochette. Somehow, the heat had welded them together into a grey, suppurating, renal brick. It could be the result of an accident involving rat babies in a nuclear reactor. They don't taste as nice as they sound. God, and, and the whole thing—that's the tone of the whole thing. Uh, it, it's worse in bits. I mean, oh. it's just extraordinary. Wow. Yeah, wow. yeah. The there's, you know, it's interesting. I think I would also be bad at that job because 
and even in my own current job, because I like people to like me and it is very difficult because obviously no one's going to like you at that restaurant and you're probably not going to be able to set foot in Paris again (laughs) after writing a review like that. Um, I had a funny uh, week at work this week because I had to interview on the same day Jackie Lambie and Mark Scott, and we'll come back to Jackie Lambie in a second. But, like, obviously I like Mark Scott, Um, but I had to give him a pretty – you know, robust interview. And I like, frankly, most people that I interview yeah. and nearly everyone that I interview has to get a pretty tough going over because my job is to sort of, you know, um, see if their position or, or argument has holes in it and to try to force them to defend what they're doing. But there's a certain social awkwardness to that because... of I mean, course, What happens afterwards? Well, it's just... Look, it depends on the person, I suppose. And, you know, Mark was obviously just very friendly and gracious and was fine. Um, Sometimes people are a little snippy. But most politicians sometimes leave and they're snippy, but then the next time I see them, they're back to being friendly again. So they just get over it. But, you know, I would never in a social engagement with somebody, if I asked them a question and they started answering and going off on a tangent, I would never say, "Um, Annabelle, I'm sorry, what I asked you was blah, 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 which is how I act, of course, on television. So it's so, I find it just really difficult. It takes, I feel like I have to steel myself quite a bit to actually do that. But then you, and if you, when you're, after you've done an interview, do you, what do you regret more, being too mean to someone or not mean enough? Not mean enough. Yeah, right. Yeah, so very, very occasionally I think, you know, I went a bit too hard, only only rarely. Um, more often I'm likely to think, oh, I should have actually, you know, done X, Y, Z. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a hard, hard thing. The only thing that I think helps me in doing it in this job is the fact that most people I'm interviewing, like 95% of people, are professional, yeah. high-level avoiders of, <laughs> of scrutiny. So that makes me feel like, right, I'm here to actually do a job and get some answers. And so that gives you a bit of sort of oomph. And if you're dealing with someone who's been thrust into the public eye through adversity, like, you know, Peter Grester's parents or something yeah. like that, you're not like, excuse me, can yeah. you answer the question? <laughs> yeah. You're obviously a bit more... Kind yeah, of... a bit more circumspect. But... So Jackie Lambie this week, um, you remember the other week we were talking about Peter Carey and you asked me in an interview, when someone drops something out there that you wish they hadn't, what do you do? And in his case, it was a CIA conspiracy theory. And I said, look, I just pretended like it didn't happen and kept going with what I wanted to go with. The exact opposite thing happened with Jackie Lambie the other night where she revealed that she had had a meeting with Greg Hunt and obviously the government's trying to get her vote. And I was pressing her on what did you talk about thinking that maybe she would reveal that Greg Hunt was trying to yeah. line her up for something? And she said, oh, well, mostly we talked about the bee problem. In terms my bumblebees. Of my bumblebees. <laughs> and so there was actually a cutaway of me giggling um, because what I really, really wanted to do was to go, bumblebees, let's talk about that. But clearly See, that's that That's what was... I would do in my format where I've got six hours to just fart ass about. So the exact opposite thing happened, which was I ignored it, not because I really wanted to, because I really would have loved to go yeah. down that path, but I just it wasn't on track. But I still don't know what, what was she talking about? Like what was the bee thing? Um there is a bumblebee population in in Tasmania. I actually then went back and looked it up and then I tweeted a link to the ABC's story about bumblebees because let it be noted that no other national news outlet has covered the bumblebee issue. I tried to check to see if the Australian had covered the bumblebees. Nyet, <laughs> nothing, nix. So anyway, that's what is, just, what that's is just by way of... What, um, uh, too many, too little? Uh, threatened population, I believe. Like right. bees everywhere are in big trouble. Like you yeah, can spend right. your entire life reading about the dreadful things that are happening to bees. Um, 
And look, I mean, I, without knowing more, I'd have to say the bumblebees are probably a bit out of place in, in, in Tasmania. I mean, like, the difference between a normal bee and a bumblebee is amazing. Bumblebees are like these zoomy junior jetliners, you know, and they're kind of fluffy and they make a comedically loud noise and they accidentally fly into you like, whoa, it's like being, you know, hit by a teddy bear or something. So they're incredibly cute. Um, anyway, there's a, look, there's extensive issues. It, it never seems to amaze me, like, some of the stuff that, wow, Annabelle knows a bit about bees. <laughs> Where did that come from? I don't know. I think it was... Um, Keeping yeah. bad company? Probably, yeah, low company. <laughs> what have you been up to this week? It's a it's a pollen operation. Get it? You know, a pollen station. Oh. Sorry. Oh. That, sorry, that is really lame. Um, what have you been doing? Well, I've had a very weird week as well. Um, I mean, it was a really sad week because, um, of, God, there's announcements at the ABC which were just mm. horrendous. And, you know, when... Everybody in a building is similarly stricken. It's a really um, dreadful thing. It's, you know, it's almost like when you have a death in your workplace community and everyone is kind of suddenly a little greyer around the face. It was like that. And um, we had this weird day because we were um, we were actually cutting our episode of um, Kitchen Cabinet with Clive Palmer, which goes to her on the second, Tuesday the 2nd. Um, and so we'd sort of popped out from cutting Clive Palmer to, you know, see the whole organisation being cut, you know. Um, but the week, that wasn't actually the, even the strangest thing I did this week. The strangest thing I did this week was stage a knife fight in a car park with Lee Lin Chin. <laughs> what? Oh, well, look, SBS, um, there's this great little SBS show called The Feed where they do, um, you know, they do sort of current affairs in a kind of satirical style and um, and sometimes straight, but they've got this great skit that they do with the cooperation of Lee Lin Chin um, that's just basically makes Lee Lin out to be this monster. <laughs> and she is such a great actress that she plays along with it. It's so funny. I mean, um, they've got this one called um, The Real News Readers of Sydney where, you know, Lee Lin and Sandra Sully, you know, have this sort of, face off and, and there's one where she fictitiously undertakes a breakfast morning show breakfast show and so Larry Emder and um Kerry Ann Kennelly come in to school her on oh, you know God. breakfast television's gonna chew you up and spit you out <laughs> and she's always wanting to knife fight everyone so what they've done as a season finale is um you know that scene in the Anchorman movie yeah where um all the newsreaders from different networks come yeah. together and yeah. have a fight in a car yeah. park it's yeah. like Gentlemen, no rules except no blows to the face or hair. <laughs> and then they just, you know, bike chains and everything. Well, they've decided to reproduce that with um, news readers and on-camera people from the different networks. So Classic. I would met at a at a dis, uh, at a disused warehouse um, with everyone at, the at once. Or were they yeah, yeah, we were wow. all there. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. So you know, um, Lisa Wilkinson and oh, Richard Wilkins and Carl Stefanovic are kind of like fighting with um, Juanita Phillips and Steve Kinane and me and um, a bunch of people from 10 and 7. Anyway, it was completely bizarre, but it was great fun, I think. I can only presume that Lee Lin comes out on top. Lee Lin was just, look, she is ice cool, that woman. She's just, and also, <laughs> she's teeny. She's the size of a child, except a child that's just dressed in the most fabulous haute couture. I mean, she's kind of amazing. And I said to her, you know, the script's very funny, which it is. I mean, these guys are really good writers and it's funny. And she said, I haven't read it. So she doesn't read it until she goes on to do it. Like, she's wow. really hardcore. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. 
Um, it's funny you mentioned the ABC stuff because even though the tone of this podcast is very, you know, cheerful and upbeat, I must admit, and I don't know if it's coming across, I just feel so sad this week and it's partly about that, but it's also about there's been so much bad news around, like that baby down the drain yeah. and the cricket thing yesterday, I feel really upset about that even though... I don't follow cricket. I'd never heard of Philip Hughes until that thing happened. But and I've been trying to put a work out why I feel so upset by that. But it's it's something to do with how Joan Didion writes about it in the Year of Magical Thinking, where she opens by saying, because you know the book's about the death of her husband and her mm. um, the severe illness of her daughter, who then dies actually after the book's written. But it starts with her saying, you know, you can something along the lines of you can be sitting at your dining table and then something happens, everything's going along normally, something happens and then life, as you know, it changes in an instant and it's over. And then she goes on to talk about how when people talk about September 11, she was struck by how many people would start that by saying it was just an ordinary day yeah. or it was a beautiful day. Yeah. And so the thing that strikes people as weird is that it's not even – that this horrible thing then happens. It's the fact that there was no portent of doom. There was no sign that this thing was happening. And so seeing that cricketer yesterday get hit by the ball, it's like you're just living your life, you're doing your everyday thing, and then this catastrophic thing happens. Don't you think, though? And I think I had the same reaction to you. I felt really strange looking at images of that moment. I feel like the moment in any human life at which complete normalcy surrenders with this tearing irrevocability to chaos and grief and fear and horror it's such an intimate moment isn't it because i think if you were looking back you know as a as a relative or um you know or, or, or him himself or, or to look back at that moment and to think of how jarring it is for everything to shatter in an instant. That's a really intimate moment. And I felt wrong even looking at pictures of that moment. I felt like certainly broadcasting footage of it was just so, I don't know, it felt like a, a real invasion. And, and, and when I think about something like September 11, the extraordinary thing about it is that it's a constellation of those moments for so many people. It's just, yeah, anyway. It's... And it's a series of... You know, it's something that struck me a lot over the years when I've covered court cases on and off that, and it must be something that I have actually asked a couple of judges about this, that so often this moment of complete catastrophe is reached by a series of inconsequential decisions that everyone involved in the process often is thinking, if only X, Y, Z had happened. Like there was a story a few years ago that I found quite affecting. People might remember it because... It was one of those things where um, there's been a king hit in or a, or a fight or something in, um, I think it was like Bondi or somewhere over that way mm. in Sydney, um, and it was an Irish backpacker who was um, killed in this thing and they didn't know the person who'd done the punching and so they asked him to come forward. And yep. the kid's mother flew out from Ireland and she did this extraordinary press conference where yep. she said, I forgive whoever did it and just, you know, come forward and whatnot. And she seemed like she genuinely did, like it was quite extraordinary. Anyway, the kid then came forward who had done the punching. He came in with his dad. And what had happened was that the kid who had done the punching was on his way home, I think, from work or something. Yeah. And he stopped at a kebab shop to get a yeah, kebab. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah. In the middle of the night. And the other kid was there and he was drunk and he had a bit of a background as being a bit of a rough yeah. drunk. And a fight was picked. And then the 
kid who died fell over and hit his head and it was yeah. sort of a freak thing. And it was one of those things where that was just bad for everyone involved, for the kid who did the punching, for the obviously for the kid who died, for his mother, mm. for the guy who owned the kebab shop even, yeah. you know, for everyone involved in that story. It was just awful. And it was – I kept looking at it thinking – if only that kid hadn't stopped for a kebab on the way home from work. Mm. If only he'd finished work half an hour earlier. If only the Irish kid had stayed yeah. for one more drink. If yeah. only the kebab guy had gone home early. Like just this whole cluster of things that could have changed this really awful outcome. And then it's too late to change it. It's it's an extraordinary act of grace, isn't it, to be able to detach yourself from all of that and accept that things happen without an explanation. And I think... I mean, sometimes there is a, a kind of a pattern that you launch into about, you know, which is what we often pursue as journalists when something goes wrong. Well, who's responsible? Should there have been more regulations? Yeah, like I why? noticed that today there's this, you know, there's this discussion about the construction of batting helmets and so on. And it's, I guess, our tendency, increasingly our tendency as a society to look for, inf- in, to look for explanation and to look for cul- culpability. And... It doesn't in any way in the end really protect us from the reality that things go wrong, you know, that things, dreadful things happen from the most sort of spurious of circumstances. And that's a very hard thing on a human level, I think, to, to accept because once you accept that random um, disaster is entirely possible, then it kind of robs you of sleep at night, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. But that that is the way that life is, but it doesn't bear thinking about too often because it's a hard thing to wrap your head around particularly say in relation to your children that random bad things can happen Mm. you know to people that you love as well um right we better try and cheer everyone okay give Um, me your wrap up of just little bits and pieces that you've been reading or watching this week um well i um i've been reading um a book called we're all completely beside ourselves which oh yeah, yeah okay i want to know what you think of this because i've Seen so much about it. Right. And, yeah. So it was um, shortlisted for the Booker. Yep. Um, and it's a story. There's, there's like a massive barn door sized reveal about a third of the way through the book. It's, 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 it's written, the narrator is this, um, uh, is uh, a girl who's looking back at her unusual childhood. And she reveals very early on that her brother is missing and her sister is gone. And, she has this sort of very weird relationship with her parents and you, you get a bit of you get further background as to how that's come about through the course of the novel and as I say at about the, the at the one third mark you get this kind of spectacularly hilarious I did not see that coming reveal that kind of makes you laugh out, out loud at its complete effrontery you know he's because you've been kind of really hoodwinked for the first um, third of the book but it's great and look one of the great things about it is that it's um, hugely unnerving in the way that any tale of a of a wrong childhood is you know it's confronting but it's also incredibly funny you know that the writing is so funny and um, the writer's tone which kind of incorporates asides that are kind of meta commentary on on the writing itself on the story itself I really you know I, I really loved the writing um, remind me of the name of the author did you, um, did you just looked it up I can't you? remember it was I'm gonna say MJ Highland but I know that's not no it. no um, joy joy anyway, somebody the book is anyway we're all completely beside ourselves yes I should remember the name but I'm reading it on the Kindle which means that 
I don't see the title. Do you find that with Kindle reading? You, you, people say, what are you reading? I'm reading this fantastic book about something. <laughs> it's, you know, to click back and remind yourself of the title. It's yeah. really hard work. Oh, God, anyway. I'm also a big sticky beak on public transport. What yeah, people I are hate reading. that about the Kindle, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so um, so it's great and funny and, um, and I'm okay. really enjoying it. Um, okay. So I should read that then. You should. Okay. Um, and just, look, I feel awkward about the fact that we apparently cannot get through this half hour without mentioning Lolita. It's just that I'm on a kind of, you know, <laughs> I'm on a bit of a skein now of thought. And I read, someone tweeted to me the other day a really interesting link to um, a piece that's up on um, the Penguin sort of long reads um, that was my friend site. Nadine, I think. Hazlitt. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Nadine. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, and it's a story about, um, it's a really quite in-depth examination of um, uh, Nabokov's supposed inspiration for the story of um, Lolita, which is a um, the real-life um, abduction of a girl called Sally Horner, who was 11 when she was taken by a guy called Frank LaSalle, who then pretended to be her father. And you know, Anyway, um, it, the piece is by um, Sarah Weinman. Um, it's called The Real Lolita, and it's completely fascinating and also made me feel a bit guiltier about liking Lolita in a complicated sort of way. Mm, okay, I'll have a look at that. Um, so two things that really took my fancy this week. One is there's a board game called Diplomacy. Have oh, you yeah. Heard of it? I got a little bit into that and then frightened by the people who are really into it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I retreated. Yeah. So it's basically a board game where you, you know, are a country and you try to build alliances with other countries and whatnot. And people are, there's a, you know, very serious community of people who play diplomacy. Anyway, this... It's like how to be Vladimir Putin at home. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So there's an episode of This American Life um, where there's a guy who likes playing diplomacy, but he feels like he's not very good at it. And then the World Diplomacy Championships are happening in Washington, D.C. And so he decides, you know what, I think I need some help here. And so I'm going to call a real diplomat to help me. And so do you know who he gets? Dennis Ross. Get out! He gets Dennis Ross to the, come to the World Championships of Diplomacy. So, is that in the rules? I, it's unbelievable. And so for anyone, if you don't know who Dennis Ross is, he is, you know, possibly, well, he's absolutely definitely one of the world's preeminent... Great board game players. <laughs> preeminent diplomats. Um, he basically negotiated the Oslo Peace Accords. He assisted with the dismantling of the Berlin Wall. Um, he is like the a guru of... Um, among diplomats. It's like um, if you're having a little trouble at chess and you get Gary Kasparov in. Absolutely, yeah. exactly, that's right. Or a bit of trouble with cooking and say so you're in Heston Blumenthal. <laughs> like, unbelievable that you would show up with Dennis Ross. Anyway, so he, Dennis agrees to come and just help him through the first round and this kid has never done anything. <laughs> just he's in, like, the top four people at the World Championships when he's got Dennis Ross with him. And it's just gold. So you're listening to Dennis Ross. <laughs> Dennis Ross will have him out in the corridor going... Right, well, look, just listening to the way those people talked, Turkey, you know, he reminds me of, and he would go actually talk about real life. That reminds me of Ataturk. Yeah, absolutely. He would go, that guy's demeanour, it's exactly like so-and-so in Bosnia in 92, and I think you can trust him. And then he'd go in Italy, nah, he's playing a long game. It was extraordinary how Dennis Ross reads it. And also... When Dennis Ross then leaves, he gives everyone there a little pep talk about, you guys are all, you know, fantastic, and this is it's really enjoyable for me, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the guy... Dennis Ross goes and then the guy just bombs out in round two without Dennis Ross. He can't do it. And so he rings Dennis and says, oh, Dennis, you know, I think I'm not cut out for the US Foreign Service after all. And and Dennis goes, but 
I never told you that you were. And then the kids believe that Dennis Ross has said that. And that's, and it sort of ends with him saying, and that's why Dennis Ross is a great diplomat, because I just believe what I thought <laughs> Dennis Ross wanted me to hear. So it that was so spectacular. It was so enjoyable. And what a brilliant idea to take Dennis Ross. And how awesome that Dennis Ross went. Um, so that was just highly enjoyable. The other thing that really tickled my fancy, which I'm going to read aloud because it's quite short, um, because, you know, we can't have an episode without a mention of show tunes. Um, the headline on this piece is, actually, you might, do you even know what I did last week when I was waiting for you to come out to the car? No. Listen to last week's episode. Oh <laughs> Are you kidding? I've got better things to do with my time. <laughs> did you? Oh, my God. You slipped on the leg warmers, didn't you? La, la, la. Um, okay, so the headline. Of what this... about when we were, um, we were doing this um conversation that the State Library of New South Wales um, oh, talking yeah. about my book and <laughs> and I had the worst cough. No, I had a really runny nose. Runny nose. I had yeah. a really runny nose. And so I was getting it like every now and again I had to like break off and really glamorously go, honk. <laughs> and anyway, you with your ridiculous aim to be singing wherever possible. Every time I blew my nose, you did this. The sun will come out tomorrow. And it covered <laughs> I thought it covered it beautifully. You were able to honk till your heart's content. <laughs> <was> so good. <laughs> um, okay, so the headline of this is Sting joins the cast of his struggling Broadway musical. <laughs> I hope I can read this without cracking up. Um, Sting will take, so then the subtitle is Producers Hope His Appearance in The Last Ship Will Boost Ticket Sales. Sting will take the leading role of the musical The Last Ship between December 9th and January 10th in a bid to boost failing ticket sales. The show, for which Sting wrote both music and lyrics, has been losing $75,000 a week since it premiered on September the 29th and risks having its Broadway run cut short, reports the New York Times. I've been working on this show for five years and been at every rehearsal, every performance. So it's not like I've flown in from Planet Rockstar to save the day, Sting said in an interview Sunday. The lead producer of The Last Ship, Jeffrey Seller, hopes that Sting's appearance will boost award chances. Our goal is to win the Tony for Best Musical, he said. Now, let me just pick that apart. So Sting joins the cast of his struggling Broadway musical. Like, there's comedy right there, like... Really? That's going to help? You think that's going to help matters? Um, I want to lead, I want to listen to the podcast of this happening, just FYI. <laughs> then also, like, you've got a musical that's losing $75,000 a week and it's going to be cut short, and the producers hope that they, is that they're going to win the Tony for best. <laughs> like, that is just extraordinary. Like, he's living on planet crazy producer. But also, like, I love the idea of planet rock star, and also Sting is exactly the sort of person who would live on planet rock star. And I imagine what the Sting enclosure on Planet Rockstar would look like. They'd just be like, I think I just had this vision that would just be all billowing, sort of slightly volvic looking. <laughs> <laughs> and him and Trudy Styler would just be doing it. <laughs> With lots of people in the background doing yoga and, and stuff. And I feel like that there would be a loot somewhere. There'd would be there be a, of, a loot? There'd be a lot of, yeah, there'd definitely be a loot. Sting, I remember once reading review, <laughs> review of a Sting album which described his music as the sort of music you'd listen to in your Mercedes as you were zipping up to upstate New York for your adulterous affair weekend away, which I thought was just exactly right. Um, the <laughs> Thanks, Sting. Good luck Thanks, with Sting. Good luck with that. Planet Rockstar too, like they would have awesome GDP, but the economy would still be screwed because the government would be just spending all the revenue on hookers and blow and yachts. Also, Bono would keep his money elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> right. He'd be he'd be in an intergalactic silent account. <laughs> 
like just hanging out with all of those, you know, Kanye West and Beyonce and all of them in the one country. Like it's it's a fascinating prospect. So thank you very much, Sting, for planting that thought and may the last ship continue sailing forth. Um, now, I should say at this point uh, that if you like our podcast, please go and give us a review on iTunes um, and you can – Everything we talk about, all the links, you don't have to worry about Googling that yourself. You can go to our website and they are all there in a list ready to go. So www.chat10looks3.com. See how much better I've I got? I know. And don't forget that the digits are digits. The digits are digits, exactly. Yeah. So you could listen to us on iTunes or on the website. and Or you yeah. can just come round, although that would be Pop creepy. over. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, yeah, that's it. So, Thanks, have, have a good week, everyone. Sorry I didn't cook this week either. Yeah, I know, that's pathetic. Bought biscuits. Like, it's a bought biscuits shame. Well, it's... we're all tightening our belts, aren't we? All right. Exactly. Okay, bye. See everyone. ya. This is where I hilariously attempted to turn this thing on. <laughs> <laughs> this has gone very well. <laughs>